to Something to Eat and Something to Read, our podcast all about reading and cooking and reading about cooking. This is episode five of season two and we are thrilled to be here with you. Hi, Jermaine. How are you? Hi, Sophie. Well, we're back in our respective homes and towns, aren't we? Which is a bit different to last time, but it's better than nothing being on the internet. Yes. And the sun is shining, thank God. And next time we will actually be in the same room together because our last recording of the year we are doing in person with a live audience which is a bit exciting slash terrifying <laughs> it's very exciting and actually we'll be in a garden rather than a room oh, yeah. So. yeah so we're doing an event at happy hen yeah. which is sold out which is super exciting um but we are going to do more live events so this is our kind of dipping our toe in the waters but for anyone who hasn't come across this podcast before, I should probably explain, I'm a food writer and Jermaine is a bibliotherapist and we get together every episode and we talk about a book that one of us has chosen and the shape it has left on us and the food in it and how we feel about it and then we answer a listener letter with a prescription for something to eat and something to read. And we also should just quickly say thank you so much to our supporters over on Substack who are growing all the time, which is exciting, mm. isn't it, Jermaine? Mm. And like your support just lets us keep doing this. So we're really grateful to you. Completely. It's um, it's really exciting to see this community building. And as I always say in every episode, if you have anything going on in your life and you want a prescription for something to eat and something to read, always email us at any time yes. or direct message us on our Instagram page. And that goes for all our people coming to our event in December. Yeah. You know, just send an email. It'll all be anonymous. <laughs> we love answering all those life questions. So we do. Don't be shy. And we've got a beautiful letter today, actually. Some of them, we've had some really poignant, sad, just beautiful letters. But today mm. is a real celebratory letter, celebrating friendship. And yeah, we to get into that. So today's book is Small Fires by Rebecca May Johnson. Uh, the subtitle is An Epic in the Kitchen. Now, this was my choice, and I'm just going to read the synopsis of the book that the publisher wrote. So, in Small Fires, Rebecca Mae Johnson reinvents cooking, that simple act of rolling up our sleeves, wielding a knife, spattering red hot sauce on our books, as a way of experiencing ourselves and the world. Cooking is thinking about the liberating constraint of tying apron strings, the transformative dynamics of shared meals, the meaning of appetite and bodily pleasure, the wild subversiveness of the recipe beyond words or control. So as I said, it's my choice. I have been following Rebecca Mae Johnson's podcast, The Dinner Document Podcast and Newsletter, for quite some time. And I do think she's a, a really interesting thinker and writer. When I first started reading this book, mm. I just wasn't sure. It seemed quite kind of cross mm. and, it, and it kind of lacked the comfort and joy that I often get from books about food. But I don't think that's the point mm. as such. What was your first impression, Jermaine? I had never actually heard of Rebecca Mae Johnson until you told me about this book. So I really went into this having no idea who she was. Or In fact, when I first read the blurb, I thought she had um, actually worked in kitchens. Like mm. I think it says something about her cooking in 10 different kitchens and I was thinking, oh, it's like a, a chef's memoir. Yeah. I went in with no expectations and for such a short book, I actually found it a really difficult read. But I think it was because it was filled with so many ideas that I found myself at points getting a bit lost in how how her ideas kind of took her down different paths. And I realised very quickly, this isn't a book you take to bed. No. Like we were talking, we've, we always talk about which book do you curl up with in bed. And it's a book that really demands your 
attention and your intellect, but it also demands that you're able to let go of your intellect and play with the ideas that she brings up. So then it made me start thinking, because I always think it's even more interesting perhaps to talk about the books that you bristle against or don't like Mm. than to talk about the books that you love. Because what I realized was that she'd actually brought up some beliefs that I had that I actually wasn't that consciously aware of and I felt quite challenged by thinking it through. I'm actually amazed how in so few pages she has um, taken me on quite a huge journey of my own. We could say my own red hot (laughs) (laughs) because I now realise like how much I've left my own experiences of cooking like as a woman, as a wife and a mother, unrecorded and unexplored, which um, we'll get to, I know, in the conversation. Mm. Um, but that's her whole point, how this work gets completely unrecorded and unexplored. What about you once you got through the um, not having a comfort read? Parts of it are joyful and comforting. Like there's that chapter, which I loved. Mm. I think my favourite part of the book where she's talking about cooking the sausage recipe and the station <laughs> and and how she just turns the music up and tightens her open strings. And and I found that I loved that piece of writing. And it's mm. when she's cooking that I that her writing really resonates most with me. But her job, I, I mean, she's an academic. She's done a PhD. She's a critical thinker. Mm. And that's her job, I guess, as a writer, is to make us think and re-examine the everydayness of putting on an apron and cooking and, you know, what that means to us. So I, I appreciate that it made me think a little bit harder. I think maybe I'm not a very deep thinker. <laughs> it challenged me to do that, uh, which I'm grateful for. And one of the things that it really jumped out throughout the book is this idea of the recipe. She comes back mm-hmm. to this one recipe that she cooks over and over throughout her life in different kitchens, different countries for different people. And it's, I find that really interesting and in how every time she cooks the recipe, it's different. And she talks about recipes as just a um, words translated into food essentially and it will always be different I found it really interesting this idea she always brought up about anxiety around recipes and why some people resent having to use one why other people are often like where oh I never cook from a recipe is a bit of a badge of honor why do you think it is that people mm. kind of some people feel like they have to admit to using recipe because I don't know about you but I wouldn't know how to make a lot of things without someone walking in front of me and showing me how to do that. (laughs) We're not born knowing how to make pastry or whatever it might be. (laughs) Well, no, you know me, I I need a recipe. I need to measure out my spice in teaspoons, remember? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the other way. But I think this would be so interesting to hear from our listeners and subscribers about this because I kind of wonder how much this is a generational thing too, like, well, I just am wondering if the older generations would answer the questions in the same way as like mm. us being Generation X or the Millennials or Generation Z because I've got well, a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old who love cooking. They get their food ideas, I'll call them ideas rather than recipes, from TikTok. So they kind of follow someone working a recipe through And I wonder if that's a bit closer to the older generations who I imagine would say they learnt to cook at their mother's knee Mm. or recipes are handed down orally through generations. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously you can't generalise completely and everyone's going to have a different experience. But um, I know that I 
definitely need a recipe to get my ideas and then to actually make sure they work. Yes. Yeah. I just thought it was quite interesting how she explored that idea of um, resistance to the recipe sometimes because to me, Mm. the sharing of a recipe is a really generous act. It's like, I've made this thing. It tasted good. Why don't you try it? Here's how you do it, you know. So I thought that was quite Mm. interesting. And that idea of who owns a recipe and the origins of recipes and the recipe that she talks about throughout the book is it's a tomato sauce essentially that she first I think found in the Guardian by Ruth Rogers who's River Cafe but she um, attributed it to Marcella Hazan or Marcella. She attributed it to her as the origin of that recipe but I'm sure Marcella would say, oh, no, it came from my nonna or something. So that idea, and me as a recipe writer, I find that really fascinating. Like who owns a recipe? Well, no one really because every time you translate it, every time you make it into food, it's going to be different. And I thought that was really interesting and really nice. You know, you can't hang on to one piece of food knowledge because it's going to, the minute you make a recipe of mine, Jermaine, it becomes yours, I think. Well, true, and it can't be exactly the same, can it? I liked how she commented on, you know, your ingredients aren't the same each time, mm. fresh ingredients, you know, and, and also thinking about recipes and how she observes that it's like um, a recipe's written by the body and without a body a recipe makes no sense. Yeah. Like a recipe's kind of dead, isn't it, if it's not going to be used. And that made me actually think about, I wonder if this is why I don't find reading recipes a comfort because I do find they make little sense. To, you know how we've talked before about people who do love reading their recipe books as a comfort mm. read and I haven't got that and I actually wonder if this is why because they don't make much sense to me unless my body's actually involved perhaps. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, we've had a few books recently where recipes have been viewed as a form of poetry mm. and I kind of wonder now in this book it's like it's performance art isn't it with as you say the music the dancing the splattering the sizzling and it's so much more than words on a page yes definitely and once you've cooked a recipe and you read it or you've cooked a similar recipe I think you can bring that to life so much more in your head the next thing I thought about this book and I sort of alluded to it early but this idea of bringing critical thought into the kitchen and I think perhaps Hmm. that's where I felt a little bit cut adrift at the beginning of this book because perhaps I don't bring enough critical thought into my general life anyway but I thought it was really interesting how she <laughs> talked about her PhD mm. and I think it was about a, a translation of the Odyssey mm-hmm. I love the story of Penelope um so she was a character in the Odyssey and her husband Odysseus was away in the wars for 20 years and all the whole village was saying you've got to remarry you've got to remarry and she said oh well once I've finished weaving this, I think, what was it she was weaving? A, mm. um, a burial shroud for her father-in-law. Once I finish weaving that, then I will marry. So she weaves all day and then she unpicks all night and then she weaves all day. And this idea of this domestic task being at the heart of this great work of literature, I thought, and, and that got Rebecca thinking, well, why don't, why, where's cooking in all of this literature? Why are we applying this kind of level of interest and attention to cooking? I thought that was a really interesting take on it yeah. as well. Definitely, and this is where I suddenly realised I was quite confronted. But so with that weaving, just with Penelope weaving, I think also it shows this idea about the process, doesn't it, that it's not about the ending, it's about the constant evolution of these domestic tasks that keep going. This critical thought to cooking, I it is how she starts the book, and you're right, it's quite, it's not what you expect. I wondered about this resistance I had to it, and 
And I thought, oh, I recognise myself in one of the comments she makes that the domestic space is not connected to the endeavour of serious thought. It brought up a lot for me around my upbringing and my education. And so I went to an all-girls high school that never offered home science, as it was called back in the 80s and 90s. At that time, I sort of understood that was because the culture of the school was around getting all of us girls to university you know, this endeavour of serious thought. We had a headmistress join the school when I started year seven and she was really feminist and she was very academically ambitious. So much so there was this expectation that every single girl would apply for university. And I remember we all had to go um, and fill out our entry forms in the library and the girls who were saying, I don't want to go to uni, I want to do this or that, were told, no, no, you all have to apply for something. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to university, I ended up becoming friends with girls who had studied home science or food tech, as they now call it. And they had this foundation of education that I just had completely missed. Like, I'd never thought about why you need self-raising flour to make a cake rise, or I needed Elizabeth Zott, perhaps, (laughs) from lessons in chemistry to help with this basic kind of skill. But And I wonder now if I don't feel I'm a natural cook or and I need recipes because I kind of miss this sort of foundational kind of skill life skills yeah and 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 at that time as well like I think that and then I got to uni and I met Stuart and I feel like this feminist view was even more um, cemented because he used to talk a lot about how through his teen years he cooked the family meals at night time because his mum who's a university lecturer would work at night And so he kind of started cooking out of necessity and I think because he's probably a hungry teenage boy, but I'm sure my sister-in-law would maybe read this version of history a bit differently. But at the time I internalised it as another sign that the domestic space was not um, the space of serious thought because his mum was off working and he was off cooking. And years later, after having children, I so this came up to me as well And after reading this book that, I didn't consciously do this, but I remember when Lily was about 10 and then Louis would have been five, uh, Lily asked if she could do her own washing or put the washing on. And then she said to me, I don't know how to turn on the washing machine. And before I reacted, Louis came running out saying, here, let me show you how. I was just so struck that this unconscious part of me had avoided in some way teaching Lily about the domestic space and yet teaching both the boys about it and now you know Ned's 17 and and he cooks all the time and I mean again I think it's a necessity thing because he's starving but I think actually he gets a lot of creative energy from it and so I think what I found confronting was how unexamined my thoughts were um and also the more I thought about it how they're not that black and white I mean our school was a tiny school that didn't actually have space for kitchens or thinking about gender equality, no space for a woodwork kind of workshop either. And I think my mother-in-law did care quite deeply about the domestic space in other ways that would have been very seen as very unfeminist at the time. And I think it just made me realise how much more complex than my simple narrative of earlier life was. So, yes, it set me down a big rabbit hole of my past kind of unexamined thoughts but what about you what how did it affect you this having to think about 
kitchen and critical thought together? Well, I mean, I, I appreciated it because, I mean, obviously I believe that cooking is a really important act and to be able to cook for yourself and for others is a life skill. And it's a real bugbear of mine that my kids that are at a co-ed school, but most schools, probably it's a time and a resources thing, aren't putting enough emphasis on being able to nourish yourself and feed yourself. And, and it's not a gender thing. I think mm. boys as much as girls should leave schools with some really good recipes in their back pocket to feed themselves cheaply and healthily and all that kind of stuff. Look, I would really recommend reading this book to anyone who's interested in cooking. But it, as we said, it's not something you curl up in bed and read with kind of um, with huge amounts of pleasure. It, it does make you think. But I know that your next point was actually going to turn to the queen of taking pleasure in food. Pleasure. Um, Nigella Lawson, who makes quite a few appearances in this book. And, in, I mean, the, Rebecca is not being dismissive. She's, she loves how Nigella is kind of reclaiming that idea mm. of pleasure and appetite. I loved that part too. You had some thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I did actually. This idea about pleasure and criticism actually being able to coexist. And I thought Rebecca did that really well when she talked about the artist Martha Rosler, mm. again, someone I'd never, ever heard <laughs> of, who in this night. 1975 actually she made a movie that kind of suggested that women might simply become an extension of the whisk which I thought was such an interesting Mm, idea that you're not you are the tool in the kitchen and then she also then had Nigella who says we should please ourselves with what we can produce with the whisk that we're actually the ones controlling the whisk the whisk isn't controlling us so this movie that Martha made is called Semiotics of the Kitchen and it's on YouTube. Did you watch it? I'll put it in the show notes. I don't did you actually no, watch I didn't. it? I should have. I did watch I'm going it. To. I will after this. Was it good? I'll put it in the show notes and you can watch <laughs> <Okay>. it. <laughs> it's only six minutes long, but again, something so short gives a really intense reaction. So she's literally standing in the kitchen and she goes through the alphabet of all the different utensils in the kitchen and just names them. Mm. She's got no expression on her face and no personality, but I think the as Rebecca says, she's secondary. The engine, she's the engine that drives the tools, but it's actually quite hard to watch. So the first one she does is she puts an apron on. And she goes apron. When she gets to knife, she actually holds. So she holds the implement up as she labels it, and with knife she starts. It looked like stabbing motions with the knife when she says knife and. With the other implements, she shows the physical labour that's involved with using them. So they're really exaggerated and hard movements like the stirring even or the using a ladle and sort of like this idea of throwing the food out of the ladle, which is so different from Nigella, Mm. who's all rhythm and flowy and um, pleasure. Sensuality, that's the, yeah. Whereas Martha just seems so filled with anger. And she, when she uses the meat tenderizer, I was like, oh, my God, you know. So, yes, it's, a, it's this juxtaposition of Nigella being the domestic goddess and all sensual and um, in the kitchen alongside being reminded that the majority of kitchen implements are actually deadly weapons. Mm. <laughs> and so then I was thinking, is there this happy medium between Nigella and Martha? And then I kind of thought more about it. I thought, no, maybe it's more actually you have to be able to see both in the same space. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me actually of a, if I went down and using you as my um, analysis session, but it brought back this memory of um, I had uh, a friend who I didn't meet till we had babies and 
took her out for a coffee one day to a cafe that I used to go to all the time when I was at university with another friend. So while this friend and I didn't meet to her mother's, we were very, we bonded over books and ideas. So we could say, you know, this was a serious thought meeting with domesticity. So we went to this cafe and it had so little had changed. It looked exactly the same. It was still filled with uni students. It was still run by a lesbian collective. And then there's us, like two women and two babies sitting in this cafe. Um, I guess I was sort of lost in that reverie of years past there. And she's all of a sudden started talking to me about introducing solids and had I tried pureeing carrot. And I remember looking around and saying to her, but people in here are talking about, you know, philosophy and debating politics. And I used to do that in here. I can't believe I'm in here talking about pureeing carrots. <laughs> and then she very calmly said, yes, we're still those people, but right now we're trying to keep our babies alive. And so today the conversation about carrots is just as important as the ones you had back when you were a student. And I think actually that really illustrates this idea of um, being able to see both mm. the domestic and the, the critical thought can actually coexist if you allow room for both. Yes. And I, that's where I got to with that thought. But yeah, I, I completely agree. And I also think it's worth acknowledging, for me at least, like for me thinking about food has always been a pleasurable, comforting, joyful thing because I have mm. not been hungry. I'm coming from a position of complete privilege that food for me is um, a source of joy. Mm. It's not something I have to save and scrounge for. You know, I've not that we can eat caviar every day, but, you know, it's, I've been able to enjoy food because it hasn't been a source of stress or anxiety about being able to feed my family or being fed. And I think that's a big part of it. And this book has made me really appreciate that, that it's being angry about food and being angry about the privileges and all the gendered words and things like that, that can come from a different context. And, yeah, I guess for me it's like all, all reading nice books and cooking nice recipes because I've I've come from that place of I acknowledge my privilege as well with that mm. and I think yeah like I'm I don't know Rebecca's backstory but I think there are times when um perhaps it hasn't been super easy and and I know that Ella Risbridger talks about that a lot you know when she when she talks about cooking failures in her book that you know it's okay to say oh failures are not a problem because we can afford to buy another loaf of bread and I'm aware of that too because I say mm. that a lot I talk about oh you know it's the stakes are pretty low but obviously not endorsing waste ever. But I guess it's just a really good check-in to remember um, we're all coming from different contexts when we think about food and cooking and that informs a lot of the way we approach it and write about it. That's actually really interesting because that actually makes me think now about this article I recently read about Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that she was very into cooking. I didn't either. And actually that the idiom of um, I'd read her grocery list comes from her and she used to journal. So alongside her grocery list would be, you know, bits of poetry or Aww. this sort of serious thought. It made me think, oh, maybe we should be doing a journal for one of our episodes. Mm. But because it's described as part philosophical inquiry, part cake. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. But she didn't separate the domestic space from the literary space. Actually, she saw both in that the two places she was desperate to get published in her lifetime with a New Yorker and Ladies Home Journal. Right? So he couldn't get much more. Yes, the, the author of this article describes her as a radical academic with a bend towards baking banana bread. 
And I, I want to find this essay. I haven't tried looking it up yet, but apparently the very first essay she published was her reminiscing about the three kitchens in which she lived her adult life. Mm. And standing over the sink in Boston, gazing out of the window, she wrote that she felt like a passenger aboard an aeroplane rather than an aproned housewife. And I thought, oh, I wonder what Rebecca would have made of Sylvia's understanding of criticism and pleasure coming together. But then to your point about you come from your position, I wonder she had no choice but to be domestic as well as to she couldn't be one or the other. Sylvia I mean, or she Rebecca? was living in a time where she did have Oh Sylvia, sorry. Sylvia. Yeah. That yes, would Sylvia see herself as having gone through this process and decided the domestics is important mm. as the academic or would it could it was never really a choice for her because of the era she lived, she had to be domestic as well. So did she just have to embrace the kitchen as part of that? I mean, I don't know what the answer would be there, but I'll put that article in the show notes too because it's really quite fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to read um, that. I mean, I guess yeah. it keeps we keep coming back to it because we have to eat and we have to feed ourselves and the people who depend on us. And so it is a fundamental part of life and whether or not you take pleasure in that or whether you rail mm-hmm. against it comes down to your own thoughts and ideas and context but yeah I think that yeah it's so interesting I can't wait to read that Sylvia Plath piece Mm. one thing that always comes up in our conversations is this idea of failures in the kitchen and I'm so fascinated (laughs) about why there's so much shame around it or why perceived shame I guess like Rebecca tells this story that I really resonated I really loved it actually of how she one of the times she cooked the recipe and how she was haunted by it. And she invited a girl in one of her university classes who she didn't really know mm. or, as it turns out, like in the end. And it was the girl's <laughs> birthday and she invited the girl and her friends to her house. And she writes, I feel hysterical as I serve food to dozens of people I have never met who flood the apartment, play music I don't like, and intrude on my flatmate's private space. The thought of all these strangers eating the manic bad dish haunts me painfully. And I have times where I've caught, cooked bad food and served it to big groups of people. And I'm haunted by those as well. And I, I wonder why we're so tough on ourselves, why we expect that every time we cook mm. a dish, it's going to be good. You know, my mum is an art teacher, and I think I might have mentioned this before, but she gets really frustrated when people say to her, I can't, I can't draw, I can't paint, after trying maybe a couple of times <laughs> and giving up. And she's like, well, you know, you wouldn't sit at a piano stool and expect to pay, play Beethoven's Fifth straight away or pick up a tennis racket and play against and win against you know Serena Williams like there's practice and there's failures and there's all you know all the highs and lows so yeah I just thought that was interesting that idea of why we expect cooking just to be this natural thing that happens every single time I mean unless you have a really bad recipe that sends you down a bad path but what do you think about that do you think we 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 (laughs) put too much pressure on ourselves to make it perfect every time yeah, it's funny, as you were talking, the word um, fail-safe came to mind. Like, you know, often now you'll see yes. recipes, fail-safe recipes. I've got to say, your um, souffle recipe was <laughs> fail-safe in that, it's speaking of, I mean, it's so interesting what your mum says, it's so true, why you would never expect to sit down and just play a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So why do we attempt art and then go, well, I'm hopeless at that, or attempt cooking and go oh, I'm hopeless at that or not attempt it because you assume you'll be hopeless at it mm. so I don't know what now you know that 
souffle worked out perfectly oh. for me first time. <laughs> so now I think, oh, would that that's a bit like a fail-safe thing. I agree that I wonder, you know, Rebecca's central point in this whole book is how historically cooking has been seen as this unskilled or unpaid work or then marketed as like an act of love. And I wonder if the lingering effect then on people and you'll be able to tell me because you're you know the a food writer and a or chefs feel that they have to be so expert and so extremely highly skilled to be taken seriously because historically there has been no value placed mm. on on um feeding people and you know mfk fisher who i, I sort of view again as and like, pops yet another in book, book where mfk is um <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> she's here and she talked as well about how her family's cook made this amazing food I guess that's how she realized how important food could be or how much she loved it Rebecca quotes MFK saying how she watched her cook's knife skills transform meat vegetables and herbs into forms that change their flavor yet she says her mother and grandmother would never let the children compliment the cook and certainly not in her presence and at that time, you know, Rebecca writes, um, loyalty to their own class trumps the sense of solidarity to other women. So it just shows, doesn't it, how far we've had to come. And is this also why failure is so difficult in this sphere? Because it could then make this work seem unnecessary again or yeah, maybe skilled. I'm not sure. I mean, you being a recipe book writer can tell well, me. I don't know. I mean, I, well, we've talked a lot about, you know, cookbooks also being, you know, love stories or all, all that. Anytime you share a recipe, I do think you, you know, you're sharing a part of yourself and arms outstretched saying, you know, try this food. It's good. It's easy. It's whatever it might be. But one of MFK Fisher's books was actually called The Measure of Her Powers. And I interpreted that by saying, ah. you know, if you only by learning these things and sharing this food and cooking these things does the cook understand the measure of her powers, and like the feminine her. Yeah, I think it's just really interesting. And I think that we've all got to, and I'm always saying this, just relax with it and not take it as this huge setback if the souffle burns or if things don't work out because it's just you try it again and it will be different the next time and better. Or And it made me think of another food writer, Ruby Tando, who I'm sure people listening well, some people listening will have heard of her. I'm a huge fan. She's another English food writer that applies a lot of critical, critical thought actually to the idea behind cooking and her latest book, Cook As You Are, is all about democratising recipes and food. Anyway, it's fabulous. But she was on that great podcast, How to Fail, with Elizabeth Day, mm-hmm. and I'll link the um, oh, link yep. in the show notes. And she talks about one of her failures is that she has had some really spectacular cooking fails. It, you know, she's invited critics to her or, journalists to her house to cook for as part of PR led up for her cookbook release and it's been a failure or she's burnt it mm-hmm. and I was so grateful to Ruby for sharing that so honestly sharing that that even she is a professional mm-hmm. cook food writer um, cooking for a food journalist has had these huge failures and she said you know she, she was gutted but she shared the story and she learned from it she moved on anyway I think maybe Instagram we've talked about this before maybe this world we live in where everything has to be perfect has something to do with this idea of failures in the kitchen being shameful but anyway let's move on I'm just thinking oh okay so the other thing I'm almost the end of my shape of the book is which I found quite confronting is she has a whole chapter about the word lovely and you know my blog (laughs) is called local is lovely I have a book called local is lovely and I love the word lovely 
but it really made me think. And she often, she writes at the beginning of this chapter, the word I encounter most often when I tell people I'm writing about cooked fruits is lovely. It makes me want to tear my hair out. She goes on to write that lovely is a gendered adjective (laughs) and that it erases the signs of domestic work. She writes, lovely works to conceal the reality of the subject matter. It is an anaesthetization that flattens, an anaesthetization that flattens. And it made me really think, does that word lovely, does it really flatten and gender the role of the cook and the act of cooking? So then I went and looked it up. The Cambridge Dictionary defines lovely as pleasant or enjoyable or giving pleasure and holding Mm. your attention. So I prefer that reading of the word, obviously. But it did make me think because um, maybe it does flatten the act of cooking by saying it's just generically lovely. What do you think? Do I need to go and change the name of my blog? No, because as you just said, it's about pleasure. Mm. It's about that side of understanding what cooking is, that it's not just drudgery. Mm. It's actually, it can be pleasurable or lovely. I was also struck by her exploration of the idea that cooking with love is a way to sell cooking to women, Mm. you know, that she writes about the cook producing the food radiates uncomplicated love the phrase used to avoid thinking about the cook and the specificity of her life. And that, I guess that kind of made me think about the ways we're, again, the excuse for not valuing the domestic space because it's about care and love mm. is actually a real cop-out in a lot of ways, isn't mm. it? And it also made me think about, like, the symbolism of kitchen equipment. And it, it this came to me because, you know, Lily's moving into a share house and her, she and her flatmates had gone to pick up a fridge that was being sold, a secondhand fridge from this guy's house. And they turned up to collect the fridge a couple of weeks ago and the guy came out and said, oh, yep, I'll just go in and get it. And then five minutes later he came out and he said, oh, really bad news. Apparently I hadn't told my girlfriend that I, it's her fridge <sighs> and I haven't told my girlfriend I was selling her fridge and she doesn't want it sold. Oh. And they're like, what, we've had these text conversations for a week about buying this fridge and you never told your girlfriend? And um, he's like, yeah, she's quite upset about it. I'm really sorry that they've driven an hour to get this fridge, but um, I can't sell it. And they're like, right, okay, fine. And so they get in the car and as they turn around to drive away, they see the girlfriend's come out of the house and she's crying and shouting at the boyfriend yeah, Lily made the joke that they'd made the comment, wow, that fridge must really mean something to her. But it, it did make me think, what did that fridge actually symbolise, that her fridge symbolised for her separate to the boyfriend's and the fact he could just choose to sell her fridge? And, I don't, yeah, I mean, it, was sort of, it, it just got me thinking about what other emotions and value we place on these material things, particularly when they're in a very gendered space like the kitchen. Mm. Well, I would be very cross if Tim sold my fridge without telling because <laughs> I do love my fridge. It's new. <laughs> I agree. And I think, but where I think it comes to me, it, it started to resolve in a way that I felt a little bit more comfortable with was towards the end of the book and this idea of she seems to resolve in herself this idea of cooking for people as a way of connecting and showing love and I love the whole rice pudding chapter Mm. and she writes when we meet I immediately realize I want to give you pleasure I spend time in the yellow kitchen trying to Mm -hmm. understand how to cook for you 
When I first make rice pudding, your visible joy at the large bronzed dish scented with orange zest and cinnamon feels miraculous, even more so when you have a second bowl. I think of the pudding as a way I have met your needs. I have made a place where you feel good. And she goes on to write, which which is quite Mm. sad actually, how she makes an avatar out of food and how, this is her words, the steamy apparition of orange and cinnamon and caramelising milk solids thickened with rice starch. I find myself unappetising, so I make something delicious and offer it in my stead. Mm. I think I've done that too with people before actually, (laughs) just sort of trying to kind of get people, win people's love with beautiful food when you don't feel particularly lovable. That got my attention because the two gentlemen in my life, my son and my husband, are absolutely mad for rice pudding. They just adore it. And if I put that on the table, in fact, after today I'm going to make that recipe that she talks about, which is a Claudia Roden one, I think, with the cinnamon and the orange zest. And I know for a fact that like Tom has exams starting tomorrow. It's busy time. I'm going away. They will just be so thrilled by that appearing on the table. And I'm not making it because I'm not feeling lovely, but... That's the measure of your powers as well, isn't it? That when you know a recipe will bring yeah. pleasure to someone, that can make you feel powerful too. So I quite like that twist in the tale. But it's such a gift. Yeah. And then she also, I'll link it in the show notes, prior to this book coming out, back to the rice pudding thing, she sent that Claudia Roden recipe to five writers, not necessarily food writers, and asked them to record the cooking and how they translated the recipe. It's so interesting. Did you see that article I popped in the show notes? Wasn't it interesting how they all took it their own way? Yeah. Um, and that's the joy of a recipe, right? Yeah. We make we make every recipe our own. And mum mum and I have been doing a few cooking and creativity workshops and people often say, mm. Oh, I don't know what my style is, I have no style. And then mum gets everyone doing like collage exercise, a really simple collage recipe exercise where she'll set up a still life scene, like a wine bottle and a teapot or whatever. And just put like coloured paper and pens and you know, we have to glue them out and it's a really good exercise in composition. But everybody's collage at the end of it is so incredibly different. Like we lay them on the floor and we all look at them and, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, I do have a style, you know. And it's the same with cooking. We put our own yeah. stamp on everything we do and that's a really joyful, lovely thing. And as a food writer, I get so excited when people send photos of something they've made and it will always look different to how I've made it. But that's great because it's in their kitchen and it's with their hands and it's with what they have to hand as well. I loved that. That article you put up really then made me fully understand Rebecca's point about how recipes are embodied, that a recipe comes alive only when it's in relation with the person who's cooking it. And um, it just, as you say, every uh, single writer had a completely different experience with the recipe because of the music they were listening to or the podcast they were listening to or the it was just so visceral the time of day the bird song it made me think we talk about the shape of book left and then we talk about the shape of meal left but actually we haven't talked about the shape of the cooking process mm. and how that is completely different as well depending on the person or the depending on the different times you make it which Actually, this whole book is that exactly, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Making the same recipe a thousand times. Yes. No, that's so true. And yeah. Rebecca talks a lot about you know the role that music plays and how it makes her feel when she dances around the kitchen or the feeling of tightening the apron strings tight against her body so she can feel it. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes when I cook, I'm not loving it. You know, it's just a job that has to get done because food has to be on the table. And then other times... 
you've got the time and you can put music on and you can just luxuriate in the task. So yeah, that's an interesting yeah. way to think about it as well. I guess it kind of brings me to the last sort of point I had about this book. The way she concludes it is this kind of she, and it's not a spoiler, but kind of reconciles herself, I guess, with this idea of cooking for yourself and being enough to mm. put effort into cooking for yourself. It's not that we've come from that rice pudding where she's making it just because she thinks that that person will be happy. She's not putting herself into that narrative. But towards the end, she shares a recipe for bad news potatoes, which I think is a really beautiful piece of mm. writing. I just adored the way she wrote that. And actually, I really want to cook that now. I can't stop thinking about this potato dish. It looks so, it sounds like perfect comfort food. Yeah, and she writes, one of the most, one of the things I find most challenging is cooking for myself because it means, it means witnessing my own needs and desires and serving them. And I feel like a lot of us probably feel that in a way. You know, when I, when it's just me at home, mm. I don't put enough effort into just cooking for myself. I'm not thinking enough probably about my own needs. But what do you think about that? Again, it's such an interesting question. You know, she also said, is it possible to serve one's needs if we cannot serve our own? It reminded me of, mm. you know, when you're on an aeroplane and you're told when the oxygen masks fall, you put yours on before you put your children's on because how can you help them if you can't breathe? And I hadn't ever thought about it in this context of um, cooking for yourself. And then it made me really reflect on older people I've spoken to who will say, it's really hard to cook for one. Actually, is it? Or is what they're saying that there's a part of them that can't bear to have to witness their own needs and desires? Is it more painful to do that than to just make yourself toast for dinner? Yeah, it really got me thinking about what that actually means when people say, oh, I can't be bothered cooking for myself. Like what else is actually happening under there? I agree that piece of writing about the bad news potatoes Potatoes are the answer for everything, aren't they? <laughs> On the one hand, I um, just felt that she just recorded her vulnerability through writing that recipe, which kind of creates a shape of that recipe now, doesn't it? That there's this vulnerability there that um, was really beautifully shown through cooking. Oh, and she, yeah, so she says in that passage, she writes, I'm writing to myself, when I cooked, ate, and then wrote down this recipe, I felt like I had cared for myself. I wrote my panic and stress into the recipe mm. to document these things and make them visible to me. Oh, that's such a good point you made about that idea, I can't bother to cook for myself, which is really saying I can't bother to care for myself or to really think about what I need. Mm. And maybe I think women my age and above particularly, I think, aren't great at caring for ourselves and really thinking what do I need to eat, mm. what do I need to, what, what are my needs right now above everybody else's. But I thought she really made me think and I'm I'm glad I chose this book, although it wasn't always easy. I hope you're glad that you've <laughs> read it after all of that. Totally, because I feel like I've really learned a lot about myself through reading this book and really had to examine some parts of myself that kind of I just left completely unexamined. So <laughs> I thought it was actually amazing. I, I think I think if you go into it knowing that you really want to be challenged and made to think about these things in a different way, then it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. If you're looking for a food memoir about writing a recipe a thousand times, and then I, I don't know that it that yeah. that's necessarily the right choice. It's a never-ending conversation, really, isn't it? Because that's actually how she kind of ends the book. That this will this conversation will never end, and we just keep experiencing and evolving and 
maybe that's why this has been such a long conversation with us about this book because there is just so much in there that you can keep going and going and and there is actually no ending and I would love to know what you guys think the people listening and we've got lots of ways to chat with you now we've got our Substack, which has got a chat feature um and we've got comments on the posts or comments on Instagram but we yeah I'd love to know what people thought about if you've read the book or even there's a couple of um podcast episodes that I'll put in the newsletter which kind of comprehensively cover the crux of it with Rebecca reading out passages so we'll pop those mm. in but I think that yeah there could be some good in good conversations that pop out of this one I'd love to know everyone's thoughts Yeah. What do you think? Let's do that. I love this letter so much. So our writer says, In listening to your lovely friendship on the podcast, I have been reflecting on the celebration of friendship and sisterhood. Through all the highs and lows and all the adventures in between, I have been lucky enough to have the most wonderful group of girlfriends, the family I have chosen as my own. We have cried happy and sad tears, nourished each other's families and each other, both with healthy meals and, and soulful and laughter. They love my children as their own and I theirs, and while so diverse in our life paths, are a constant from the memories that bind us to the future we imagine for years to come. They are a break from the kids, mental diversion from work, a sympathetic ear when husbands don't read minds, oh, and bring all the good time. I would love to read about the celebration and gift of friendship and what to cook to celebrate the everyday and preciousness of it. I will whip them up this special meal with a glass of wine for no other reason than they are life's gift. I love this letter to just I love the celebration of joy that reflects on with those friendships and encouraged me to read a book by an author that I have been an author I've been meaning to read for a long time and kind of just never gotten around to and reading this book brought me such unexpected joy as well. I don't know if you have found this but I find it quite hard to find good books about friendship. I know this book's quite controversial, but I, for me, the best book I've ever read about friendship was about male friendship in A Little Life by Hanya Yanahigihara. I'm always wary of suggesting it, you know, in a bibliotherapeutic sense because, um, you know, one of the main characters of this group of four friends has had a very harrowing and abusive childhood and it haunts him. Um, He never really recovers from it. But the love of these three male friends and the way they all support each other is actually really similar to what our letter writer is talking about the chosen family and actually with the little life a little life thinking about the shape of it that book also left a huge shape on me because it's intertwined with a memory of reading it with two really close friends or we weren't reading it together but we read it at the same time and we'd be messaging because we'd all have been up till like two in the morning I mean it's like 800 pages or something but not able to put it down and and crying and it really hit and we all really loved it and then we went to hear Hanya talk at the Sydney Writers Festival and she spoke so beautifully about the book and why she made it quite harrowing and we were all in tears there as well and I'll put that interview actually in the show notes because it's a beautiful story about friendship too but that's actually not my prescription. Well, <laughs> I just, just to say that, about a um, life I'm glad you've recommended that because I have it at home mum gave it to me actually to read lent it to me and I'm nervous to read it because I've heard that it is just so harrowing yeah I've just been a bit nervous to pick it up because I just feel like life's been a bit crazy Uh and it just seems like it's a really hard read but maybe maybe it's not maybe I need to just 
no. um, woman up and get into it. <laughs> knowing you and knowing more about you, I think you'll find the moments of the uplifting moments override the harrowing parts of it. Knowing how much you get pleasure from reading about a friendship and the joy of life and there's cooking in there as well, actually. Okay. Well, I'll give it um, a go. I think actually you'll find it quite hard to put down. It's one of those books that people either, you know, sort of um, obsessed with or just have had to put down. But I remember having a bibliotherapy client once who brought it up as one of his favourite reads and said, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I totally get that. And he said he and his wife were on a holiday in Bali and his wife was reading it lying by the pool and suddenly a free drink appeared. It was from someone on the other side of the pool with a message saying, I see what you're reading. I think you're going to need a drink, ah. but keep going. <laughs> I love that. So I think that for me, the overall message of that book is that if we can experience moments of joy in the moment, that's actually enough. Mm, okay. I love that. Like you don't need a happy ending. I'm not saying anything about the ending, but like in general, life isn't about getting to this happy ending. It's about actually when you're in the moments of happiness, mm. actually embracing them fully. Mm. Um, and, and that book is the message. I mean, that's the message I really got from that book. Two things I wanted to add on just before we jump on. I love that idea of books connecting us with strangers. You know, that that someone sent that mm. drink over. I love that. And it reminded me, um, I think we talked last episode, one of my all-time favourite books, Brother of the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trapedo, having a podcast about it. Go back to the show notes. But in this podcast, I was saying how if you've read that book, it's almost like a secret handshake because if you've read it, you've loved it and you like, uh, yes. you know, you kind of get each other, like jumped about 20 points in your friendship because you kind of got covered that. Oh, yeah, we've sort of got that shared yes. love. Yeah, I think that's just divine. We talked a bit about that. the other um, book that I think celebrates female friendship really beautifully is last episode's book, The Year of Miracles, and we talked about that idea of Ella. It really was a love story True. to her female friend, yeah. female, and that idea of celebrating platonic love as something very, very precious, which I think our letter writer does as well. But if someone asked me right now off the top of my head that's a true. book that celebrates yeah. friendship like that, I think that's the one I would think of. But anyway, back to you. Sorry for interrupting. That's really a good point. I think yet again you've done a good uh, book prescription. <laughs> okay, we've had enough of you now, but I'll take over from you. <laughs> Actually, you can do it all. You can do something to eat and something to read. Oh, God, no way. Okay, um, now I want to hear your prescription. I'm excited. Okay, my actual prescription, talking about a friendship in fiction as well, earlier in the year I did a. I was interviewed by Sarah Lestrange on the book show about friendship in fiction and she also interviewed some authors who kind of written about it and I was even thinking then I was talking about books being your friend rather than actual books about friendship because I really did find books about friendship tended to be about friendships ending toxic friendships you know the mm. whole female comparison With the drama thing. I guess, and the um the drama yeah I didn't want to find like a you know fantasy kind of friendship book either but I had been wanting to read Camilla Shamsie's new book, Best of Friends. Mm -hmm. So she wrote Home Fires a few years ago, which won a slew of awards. It's actually her eighth book. And so I had been meaning to read Home Fires, but I hadn't got around to it. This book, Best of Friends, it sort of just leapt out at me because of the title, thinking about this letter. But it's about two friends and it's broken into two parts. The first part 
takes place when they're 14 in the 1980s and they live in Karachi in Pakistan. The second part leaps forward to 2019 and they're in their mid-40s and they both live in London. I just knew straight away this would be the right book for our letter writer when I read um, one of the characters says, so many women my age rely on their friends more than their partners for everything, from emotional support to belly laughs. But when we talk about people's private lives, that isn't ever what we mean, which I thought, yeah, made me think a bit as well about how friendships are so valuable yet kind of also a bit devalued or something. Mm. And so anyway, this book's sort of an exploration of the way your childhood friends know you so well. One of the quotes, perhaps that was the key to the longevity of childhood friendships, all those shared subtexts that no one else could discern. And I um, just read an interview with Camilla who said she wondered why she'd never explored friendship in her books, given how central friendships are to her life. And she's also interested in childhood friendship and the idea of relationships that start before your character is formed, which is so different from any friendship that comes later. And I think that's sort of what the letter writer's saying. You know, you've got, she's got these lifelong friends who started in childhood and are going well into adulthood. And, And this is exactly what this book explores alongside growing up in a culture and having to adapt to another culture, the ways political culture shapes your way of being in the world. And also they have an experience in their adolescence that kind of ripples into their middle age. And I think that the crux of the book is how do we make sense of what's right or wrong or find our place in the world? And I think it's a book as well that makes friendship, makes us examine friendship in the context of this bigger socio-political world. So in a way, a bit similar to the book we've done, where we're really starting to think more about the politics or the personal being political, I suppose, in some ways. Basically, she just reminds us that 40 years of friendship only tells you the unknowability of everyone. So I thought that was also a really interesting idea. Can we ever really know people? So yeah, I just have to thank this letter writer because I've now discovered a new author that I really loved and I hope she really loves her too. That sounds wonderful. I haven't read any of her books before, but I think I might start with Best of Friends. Sounds wonderful. Mm. It sounds like my kind of book that takes you all over the world to different places and different times. So that sounds amazing. And yeah, like you, Definitely. I I just love this letter and I love I love the appreciation of female friendships, which I think as you just said, sometimes maybe we I don't think we take them for granted, but we probably just society doesn't lift them up like they do romantic relationships, do they? And, you know, I was reading an mm, article the other day yeah. that I put in the show notes about the complete heartbreak of a friendship ending and how that can sometimes just derail your life mm. as much, if not more, as a romantic relationship ending, you know, that can be as painful, if not mm. more, in some ways. So I think it's really lovely to recognize this. And, you know, and I do think. What she said about the kids, you know, the other day um, a friend of mine did something incredibly kind for my daughter. It just made me think, God, it means so much to me to have kind mum friends, you know, those friends that keep an eye out for your kids and Mm. especially going into those teenage years. I think it's so incredibly wonderful and special. So we're so lucky, aren't we, to have these women in our lives that we all rely on each other. So a prescription of something to cook and share with these beautiful people just because I was trying to think of something really delicious and like finger licking good that you can have done. So then you can <laughs> actually just sit and enjoy these friendships and enjoy that moment around the table. And so it's got to be potatoes, right? Like we have to have potatoes. So we've talked about them already in this episode. <laughs> potatoes are where it's at. 
But here it's it's like a lemon smashed potatoes with heaps of herbs and fried papers. So you just kind of parboil all the potatoes, smash, smash, oh, smash, yeah. olive oil, put them in the oven until they're like really crunchy and then sprinkle over like herbs and capers and lemon juice. Delicious. And then we're going to have chicken thigh pieces that we've marinated in some paprika and some harissa and yogurt, and they're going to be barbecued, and you can have them at room temperature so they're done um, with a yummy big crunchy iceberg salad and then a warm kind of jammy tomato and chorizo salad, which is so yummy even on its own. My mouth is watering as I'm thinking about this lunch. It's going to be really Mm. easy and really good, and you can just have it all done. I would say a nice sunny day, a Sunday lunch, just so you guys pour some kind of rosé, sit outside, heaven. And then for dessert, I can't go past right now. I'm obsessed with meringues. I think I've been testing a few recipes for a Christmas story I'm working on. And just the joy of a Mm. little cloud of meringue that you can pile with, you know, vanilla-y cream and fresh fruit and smush up in your own plate and make your own little mess. That's my beautiful friendship lunch, or you can serve it to anyone. I mean, obviously friendship. yum friends, male and female, children, whatever. Thank you so much, Twilight Writer, for making us all stop and think about how special these friendships are and how we can't take them for granted and we need to just tell these people how much they mean to us, whether that's with lunch or words or both or books. <laughs> Yum. I think um, I love the meringues for dessert because there's something quite childlike there too and we're thinking about this lifelong friendships yes. and that start in childhood amongst fairy bread and all that kind of kids' food. Mm. I like the touch of meringues at the end. It all sounds delicious. Oh, we'll, mm. we'll put all the recipes, as always, lots of links actually from this episode. I'll have to go back and write them all down in the show notes, which get sent to our beautiful <laughs> subscribers. The podcast is always free to listen to, but if you would like to receive the recipes and the notes, um, that is a subscription. It's $5 a month and it allows us to keep chatting to each other and to you. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Jermaine, before we wrap this quite long one up actually sorry I've taken up about an hour of everyone's time. it's so much to think through with this mm. one that was so good um no just to oh, as I always say just you know if you've got a letter to write Please. right away and thanks to single vineyard sellers for supplying our letter writers with a case of Highgate wine that they do and our last letter writer let me know that it was delivered within a day Ooh. so there she's already hopefully she's still got some wine left for her friend lunch oh is it already gone oh gosh you're organized well done you please write us it write us a letter we we love getting them so our next recording is our live christmas event and we are about to get full-on christmassy aren't we shall we mention an our fun project that we're working oh yes um so we're doing a Definitely. christmas reading and cooking advent so for the days of advent every single day we're going to have something to read and something to cook can I tell you that this is the most fun project I've had to work on for a long time? I keep reminding myself that I've got actual paid work with deadlines that I've got to prioritise <laughs> over the Christmas advent because I'm having such a great time putting it together. So that's going to start first day of advent. We'll start our advent calendar. Yeah. Our subscribers are going to receive an email at the beginning of each week with all seven recommendations for the week ahead and then we'll drip feed them around out on Instagram mm. as well. That's right, because Christmas feels like it's come very quickly this year, but I feel like this is going to make it feel we're really building towards Christmas by doing this Mm. project. You're right. I also have been putting off actual work (laughs) to try and think of more Christmas quotes and things, and, yeah, I hope it's really fun. If anyone has uh, good Christmas books or Christmas recipes, feel free to 
let us know those as well. Yeah, we'll probably have a few gaps we need to fill. Okay, so we'll wrap this up. We'll be back with Christmas recordings and advent calendar ideas, etc. So thank you so much, Jermaine, for spending this time with me and all our listeners. I feel like we've really oh, thank you. got through a lot. I feel a bit lighter now. I've unpacked some of my issues. but <laughs> one, Yes, thank you many. for listening to all my unpacking as well. <laughs> and please let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your all thoughts. All right, we can. Um, yeah, wherever you want to share them, we'd love to hear your thoughts, whether it's on Instagram or in our Substack chat. But, yeah, thanks again. And thank you to our producer, Christy, for polishing our recordings up and sharing them and Smith & Jones for the beautiful music as always. I'll see you in the garden. Yes, at Happy Hands. I can't wait. In a few weeks' time. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate you spending your time with us. Okay, bye. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on that highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world sometimes when I wake up in the morning my mind it starts to wander Wanting to roam its way right out of my head And I get to thinking about that man I wonder if he's headed south again Or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led But I am a wandering girl I'm just a small town woman Small town woman trying to 
just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. I'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world.